the Culture Guy podcast. The last episode of November 2016. With a guest from... You'll find out. Welcome back, everybody, to the Culture Divide podcast. This is Christian, your host, also known as the Culture Guy. Today, I will present you with a newfound friend. He is originally from India, and now he lives in the United States, and he also lives what I would say is the American dream. As you may know, the election process in the United States has concluded in November. It made worldwide news, and one of the hot topics that was in discussion during the election or the campaign process was the topic of immigration and it is a pleasure to have been able to talk to Mitch Patel who himself is an immigrant he's the son of an immigrant family from India and he is the living proof that the American dream is very much alive and that immigration in especially in a country like the United States is still one of the strong pillars of the economy and, and social change. So without further ado, um, allow me to introduce you to Mitch Patel and well his very unique point of view on the topic of immigration. And here I am today with Mithul Patel, or do I say Mitch? What is it? Well, Christian, I go by Mitch, uh, but you're more than welcome to call me Matul. So Matul was your birth name. That is correct. That's the name and your ID. That is correct. That's my legal birth name. Uh, my parents are very proud of uh, naming me Matul. And um, so, uh, but uh, I, uh, after high school and college, uh, I went by a nickname. Uh, There's a few people that were, that were calling me Mitchell because they couldn't really pronounce Matul. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I went by Mitch, and it stuck ever since then. So Mithul is a name from the Gujarati language, am I right? That is correct. Um, and so, and it may be broader than just Gujarati language. It may, I, I think that that's a name that can, uh, that's in the Hindi language as well. All right. But it is a Gujarati, uh, very strong, uh, I wouldn't say extremely popular, but it is a name that's derived from the Gujarati language. So is it as popular as Mitch is in the US? Probably not, actually. Okay. Uh, Matul, I don't run a, I don't come across too many Matuls, um, and uh, even in India or here. And but I'm sure that there are quite a few uh, Matuls that are out there, but I don't know too many other right. Matuls. Yes. So by now we've established, and the audience now knows that you are or your family is originally from the state of Gujarat in India, but you don't sound like quote unquote the typical Indian in the United States. What's, what's up with that? Yeah, so uh, Christian, the reason is because I was born in uh, India. Mm -hmm. I was born in uh, Gujarat, the state of Gujarat, a city called Bardoli. 
which is outside about 20 minutes outside of a small village called Sevni. And that's where my, grand, my father was born in Sevni and my grandfather was born in Sevni and, and my great-grandfather for generations and generations have lived in uh, Sevni and they were farmers. And um, my father, my grandfather had a sugarcane plantation, one of the largest sugar factories in all of Asia. I believe not one of the largest, the largest sugar factory in Asia oh, wow. um, was developed in Bartoli which is about 20 minutes from, uh, from Sevni. So the crop um, went from rice, eggplants, other vegetables to the highest and best use, which is sugarcane. Mm -hmm. And uh, so sugarcane is a big, big crop there. I know I'm going on tangent here, but bottom line is uh, I was born in Bartoli and my, when I was nine months old, my father came to this country with uh, eight dollars in his pocket and a dream. I always say that, and a dream, and a dream simply for a better life mm -hmm. for his family. And he came here to study. He came here to pursue his master's and then his PhD in food microbiology from the University of California, Davis. So he came on a student visa. Mm -hmm. And so he's very limited. First of all, my, my, my grandfather didn't have a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, but uh, they were also limited in terms of the dollars that they could bring into this country. Right. And which never uh, uh, boggles my mind how far, even back then, $8 would get you, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but he came here to study. So he left my mother and I when I was just nine months old uh, to come study. And uh, so my mother and I joined him uh, when I was four. So I didn't see him, talk to him, even talk to him, mm -hmm. because it was very difficult in rural India back then. To get a phone uh, connection. To, oh, absolutely. Right. That was and, in the 70s, right? And it was, yes, it was in the early 70s, and it was very expensive, too. Right. Very expensive to make an international call. And then we could all remember what, how expensive it was even just 10 years ago, oh, you right. know, how expensive it was. So it was some people's annual salary just to make a call, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that just didn't happen. And uh, so I didn't talk to him, I didn't see him, uh, besides maybe some pictures that were sent by a male. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was four years of age, so, uh, uh, so I was fluent in Gujarati uh, at this time, fluent for a four-year-old, and, uh, and um, it's pretty much about the only language I knew. I didn't really know any English. And so here I am, we moved from Gujarat, India, with my mother, joined my father in 1973, uh, San Francisco, California. And I remember, I, I do remember some of this, and my parents helped me recall some of this memory because I, I was always fascinated by drawing. Hmm. And I love drawing, even to this day, I love to draw, and I love art. And I remember drawing uh, uh, the Golden State Bridge. Oh, wow. and, uh, and, and my parents remember that more than I do, actually, of drawing the Golden State Bridge. And I was just fascinated, even as a four-year-old. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember making this comment to my parents, and then my parents still remember this because they laugh when I say this. In native Gujarati slang, mm -hmm. native Gujarati language, I would say that there is no garbage. Where's the garbage? Mm -hmm. There's no garbage here. Because when you come from a third world country, and remember this was early 1970s right. India, not right. today's India, and you know they're, they're, it's a third world country. Mm -hmm. Dirt roads, a uh, lot of trash uh, in the streets, 
open sewer lines and things like that. And, uh, and then you come to San Francisco, California, I'm like blown away. I mean, what the, where, where are we? We're in the future, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is like going to, to Mars or something. This was a big uh, difference for you. Oh, this it was, was a big difference, yes. And how long did you live in California? So lived in California and, you know, Davis, California, which is about, you know, an hour away from San Francisco is where my father was going to school. So lived there for about Davis, about another three, four years. Uh, then he finished school and went on to become a, got a job as a research scientist at a pickle company in uh, Stockton, California, which mm-hmm. is about an hour south of Sacramento. And uh, so we moved uh, to Stockton, California. So farmland, California. Absolutely. Right. Farmland, California, a lot of agriculture. Um, and uh, so we were living in a, a little modest two-bedroom townhouse, and he was pursuing the traditional American dream, right? Uh, he was a, a research scientist working at a pickle company. You know, about seven, eight years old now at this time, and uh, he decides to lease an 11-room motel. Was that part of the dream? I don't think that was part of his dream initially. Uh, Absolutely, he'll tell you that too. Um, It was just an opportunity. It was an opportunity to advance him, the family, Mm. and uh, and he was going to continue. He was never planning on getting into this full-time. He was going to continue to work as a research scientist. And we were going to move into this little motel, the apartment behind the motel office. Mm-hmm. And it gave a wonderful opportunity for my mother to run this small business Got it. and for us to save on living expenses right. and uh, pursue the traditional American dream, right? And, and uh, apparently it worked out because your father, by doing that, he laid the foundation for, well, fast forward to today, um, for a thriving hospitality business that you now run and I think own and manage the the Vision Hospitality Group. So you have been in the hotel business from age seven, so to say. That is correct. So I've been in the business since a very young age, helping the family clean rooms, take out the trash, do laundry, even check in guests as an eight-year-old, right? And uh, so then we moved from California and my father decides to get into this business full time. Mm -hmm. And we moved in the middle of my fifth grade school year. So I'm 10 years old now. Middle of my fifth grade school year, he doesn't even wait till summer, and we go cross country, and he decides to buy a motel. And I say motel, it was one of those, uh, it was a Scottish inn in right. Cleveland, Tennessee. So we moved from the most liberal part of the country to the to buckle the, of the to Bible the belt. buckle of the belt, yes, of the Bible belt in Cleveland, Tennessee. So, and he decides to get in this full time. And then, the long story short, is because I grew up in this business, that's the last thing I want to do was pursue this business career. Again, I'm helping the family clean rooms, take out the trash, you know, doing laundry. And so I went on to college to become an engineer. I got my bachelor's and master's in uh, civil engineering, got a job down in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my dad had kind of retired by now, and he had like six, seven motels that he was partners in. And, you know, did a, did a, had a modest... Uh, um, did, had a modest living and uh, did well for himself, worked hard. But... You know, he was pretty much out of the business. And so three years of being an engineer, I wanted to do something else. You know, I, didn't, I was in this cubicle 
designing two-lane roads to four-lane roads in 25-foot increments. And I was always this people person, you know, the creative type person. So the engineering culture was not made for you. Yeah, and I think, look, engineering has taught me a lot. Uh, it's taught me discipline, logic. You know, there's so many things that engineering has taught me, structure. But it's not for everybody, mm -hmm. right? And so I was the creative person. And, it, and, and I loved talking to people. And it just, the position that I was in just didn't give me that opportunity. So I looked at uh, doing something else and uh, lot, looked at a lot of different things I wanted to, 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 to do. And so there was an opportunity to build, develop, manage a hotel in Chattanooga, Tennessee, my hometown area. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took on that challenge. So I had saved $3,000 working as an engineer in three years, cashed in with my 401k, and I needed significantly more than that for my share of the equity. I borrowed every single penny uh, from friends and family. My father and my mother, my parents did not give me a penny. Oh, wow. Oh, no, not a penny. And uh, I never asked, and nor did they really want to because they really wanted to see. And, and, and you know, obviously, they're not going to let me fall, but they wanted to see if, and let me do this thing on my own. And I wanted it, oh. too. Was, there, I, an, I it was too. there an expectation in your family that you as their son would have the higher education in engineering to to succeed in a more academic career rather than the more hands-on hospitality business? A absolutely, Christian. Right. I mean, you, I think you nailed it there. Um, my every generation, and we could talk about the immigrant generation here in a second, but every generation, you know, why did my father move to this great country? He came here simply not for himself. He came here for the, the next generation to have a better life. Right. You know, he broke out. It was very rare. You know, he was the first person ever. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years ever to graduate from high school in his family. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. So he, I mean, people were back then in the small village. You, you, you know, he had to walk three, four miles one way on dirt roads that turned to mud, you know, just to go to school. Mm -hmm. So... People just dropped out after sixth, seventh grade and went to work at the family farms. You know, that's just the way of life, you know. So he, he didn't want to do that. He, he knew he wanted to do more. And at that time, he didn't have a family, but he had a vision, you know. And his vision was, you know, I want to do something more for myself. Mm -hmm. And then it will absolutely impact the next generation as well. So that's why he came to this great country for a better opportunity for for that next generation. So what is that better opportunity for him? It wasn't the motel business because cleaning rooms, taking out, he was, the, the, the guy had a PhD in food microbiology. And he was washing dirty laundry. Yes, and he was doing laundry. And how many people do that? And, and not many, mm -hmm. you know, will make those sacrifices. And so he was uh, helping out cleaning rooms and doing front desk, you know, and... Uh, and so forth when he had this, uh, this, this great education, you know? So he did that because he wanted a better life for us, mm -hmm. myself, and I've got a brother who's about six years younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, so, and so. So you got ahead. into the hotel business, yes. maybe despite your parents' more loftier plans yes. for you. Yes. And you did it without their financial support, right. maybe their moral support. Right. And, um, 
as an immigrant or as the child of an immigrant becoming an entrepreneur in a field that is highly combative, that is, some would say cutthroat, um, yeah. how did you make it? Yeah, so I guess there's a lot of things I give credit to how we made it, and we're still making it, right, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, first of all, you know, uh, when, when I started building that hotel, I built that hotel as a general contractor, even though I never built a shed before. And I literally took off my hard hat, <laughs> and I put on a tie, and I'm the opening general manager, even though I never managed anyone under me mm -hmm. at that point. So there's a lot, that, uh, a lot of sacrifices that I made um, but I will tell you, after about 18 months, we struggled early, you know, and I, and I even thought about leaving this business and going back to my cubicle and being an engineer. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't love that. And I couldn't really quit because I had employees now, right? And I had signed a thing called a guarantee with the mm -hmm. bank. And, and I persevered through it, but I found my passion. And I talk about passion all the time. When you have a passion for something, when you love something, you're going to do better at it, right? right. You're going to work harder. You're going to overcome obstacles and will find success. People say that you've got to work hard in life. Yes, but it's hard to work hard in life when you don't love something. Right. Was, so, it, was it not Steve Jobs who said, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life? Absolutely. And there's so many. Steve Jobs obviously was brilliant. And he, he absolutely, every single day, you think that the money drove him? He loved what he was doing. He was trying to, trying to solve a problem you know, that, the, that, the, that every human being you know, had. You know? And, so and there was a higher, higher purpose for him is why he, what was driving him every day so you're the child of an immigrant family in in an industry that is uh, competitive yes yet you stand out especially here in the business sure. community in chattanooga which is in the tennessee valley for those right. of you out there who are not quite familiar where that is it's about two hours north of the city of atlanta right. it is um, a booming town and you stand out as a hotel business owner uh, among big, big competition in, in the field. Um, does the immigrant spirit make you more tenacious? Does it give you more dexterity to, to succeed as an entrepreneur? Well, clearly, you know, there has been a lot of successful uh, business people and there's great business stories. If you look at some of the best and greatest brands in this in this company, I mean in this country, mm -hmm. you know, it was started by an immigrant. And I think that that immigrant mentality has nothing to do with being Indian American or, you know, Chinese American or Irish American or German American. Right. When keep in mind Christian, most of these people where they came from, they didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. That's why they chose to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a big sacrifice that they're making. Mm -hmm. But they choose to do that because they didn't have anything, and they think there's they're going to be better opportunities and a better life here. So when you don't have anything, you're going to work harder. You're going to claw. You're going to scratch. Mm -hmm. You're going to you're going to just persevere. And that's what that meant. That when. Uh, combined with opportunities because there's no and I make this very clear this is the greatest country in the world right mm -hmm. with the greatest opportunities mm -hmm. and if there are tons of opportunities out there but you've got to want it right you got to want it you got to be hungry you got to be hungry absolutely and the immigrant 
regardless of where they come from, tends to be very hungry. Mm -hmm. And that's thus, it's not about, I say this all the time, you know, I will will beat IQ any day. Mm -hmm. You know, you could be the smartest person in the world, mm -hmm. but if you don't have that hunger, you don't have that drive. I will. I will mm -hmm. will beat IQ I love it. any day. Right. You know, and so that drive, that willpower will ultimately uh, succeed. Will, will get you succeed. Do you find yourself with your company hiring other immigrants more than your competitors? Do you find that working with immigrant-owned or immigrant-managed or immigrant-run immigrant businesses is an advantage? No, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say, we don't really look at that too much, Christian, when we, obviously when we hire, you know, we look at the best uh, candidate uh, regardless of, of their where they came from, their okay. ethnicity, their religion, right? Their, their sexual orientation or age or color, or whatever it may be. We're looking for the best candidate. And we, you know, someone that, that has personality, we say this all the time, that uh, we hire attitude. Because mm -hmm. you can't teach attitude. You can't teach positive attitude, right? There's a lot of things that we could teach, but you can't teach positive attitude. You can so, train skills. But yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we spend a lot of time in our company looking for people with positive attitude and you know you ask what makes our company stand out amongst a very competitive in a, in a very competitive industry and it goes back to culture mm -hmm. you know and we feel like we've got a very strong culture in our company mm -hmm. and our company starts with obviously surrounding ourselves with great people with great attitudes mm -hmm. and because you can't teach attitude so we spend a lot of time in making sure that we surround ourselves with people that share our beliefs and our values that are embedded in who we are in our DNA mm -hmm. of our company as opposed to getting people from outside and saying, hey, we want you to share our values and beliefs. Our approach is a little different. This is our values and beliefs and we mm -hmm. won't deviate from that. All right. If you share them, come join us. Mm -hmm. Come join our company. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a little different approach. And now when you have uh, 1,100 employees in our company, and rapidly growing to 2,000 here in the next couple of years. When you have 1,100 employees that share those values and beliefs, that overwhelmingly have a positive attitude and, and rowing all in the same direction, mm -hmm. then you're gonna get to your goals. Right. And the other thing that gets missed often in you know, talking about our culture is you don't just surround yourself with great people with great attitudes that share your values and beliefs, okay, you got the right person, but then you got to take care of them. So there's only two ways to lead. I, I say this all the time. One is out of fear, mm -hmm. which is never sustainable, or out of deep admiration and mutual respect, right? And so we spend a lot of time making sure that our associates, everyone's born with an emotional register. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to make deposits in those emotional registers before you can make withdrawals. Too mm. often, don't you see that? Beautiful. You hire somebody and then you're trying to make withdrawals. Do this, do this. Here's a stack of papers. We want you to do this. No, what we want is we want our leaders to get to know that person, who they are, what they like, their family, their pets, what they like to eat. Their, you know, these are, get to know that person. Make those deposits in that emotional register. You know, and that is so important. That's what separates our company from others because guess what? Our best associates mm -hmm. and our best leaders are when 
an associate says that I will do anything for that person. You can't see this because this is an audio program, but I have goosebumps. Um, does this come from your Indian heritage, this um, emotional... Uh, what did you say? Emotional the emotional register. register. Making deposits Deposit in the emotional in the register. Um, seeing the person before the task is, is not necessarily commonplace in the U.S. workplace. So do you think your, your Indian upbringing has something to do with that um, approach? Well, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily just my Indian upbringing. I'm sure it does has a lot to do with that. But I'll have to give credit to my parents, obviously, mm -hmm. and their upbringing, and then what, how they've raised me. You know, so they've taught me at a very young age, you know, the golden rule, right? And that's the foundation of our company is to treat, I mean, I think that's universal, mm -hmm. right? It crosses every religion. You know, uh, I think everyone can relate to this, is to treat people simply the way you would want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in every decision that you make, in life, in business, even with a customer, you know, if you follow that golden rule, good things are going to happen. And my father and mother would, would teach me this at a very young age. If you do the right things, if you treat people with respect, you know, and kindness, and good things are going to happen. They just will. You know, they just will. And they kept on, they ingrained that in my head at a very young age. And I've always... Uh, been that type of person mm -hmm. ever since uh, you know ever since high school or college or even you know when I went and started my company that when you do those things then guess what people want to be a part of that and uh, and and now we've got uh, more people that want to be a part of our company than we have positions for mm -hmm. you know that's and it's a good problem yes that's have. a very good problem because all companies face this talent Right. Everybody's going after the best talent. And with baby boomers retiring at faster rates than Generation X and, excuse me, Generation Y and yes. Z are, are That's moving right. into these roles, the fight for the best talent is on. And so if you have the luxury of being able to choose, that's good problem to have. Absolutely. And remember that wages is not the top reason why people stay or leave. It's like number three or four. Mm -hmm. You know, number one is feeling appreciated. Right. So if, if you could create a culture, an environment, you know, in your organization where people feel appreciated, mm -hmm. then you have a much better chance of keeping great talent, recruiting great talent, because they're going to be your best cheerleaders. Right. Your own 1,100 employees are going to be your best cheerleaders. They're going to tell others that, hey, I work at a great company where they have a sabbatical program where they give me 30, 45, 60 continuous days paid, paid days off, plus a, st a stipend to go do all the things I've always wanted to do, but why wait till you're 65 or 70 or 75 or 80 to go do it? You know, like a missionary trip or go travel or build a porch or go spend time with your, 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 your children or grandmother, or elderly grand, uh, grandparent or parent, you know? Those things in life are so much more important at the end of the day than, than uh, what we do at work. Let me switch gears real quick. Yes. Um, how many times do you go back to India? So I lately have been going back every other year. Mm -hmm. 
And I take my kids, I have three kids, age 15, 11, and nine, mm -hmm. and I've got a beautiful wife who's also uh, Indian American. Mm -hmm. And she came to this country when she was six, I believe, and she settled in Chicago area. She also Gujarati? She's also Gujarati, okay. yes. Uh, she, her last name wasn't Patel, it was Desai, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so very fortunate to, to, to marry, um, you know, my wife. And so we have three wonderful kids. And, you know, they're as American as apple pie, right? I so mean, when they, you go back to Gujarat, yes. do they look at you? They look at your last name. Is it Patel yeah. is one of the most well-known names yes. throughout Gujarat. Uh, they see you. You look Indian. Yes. And how long does it take the native Gujarati people <laughs> to realize, wait a second, you're not, you're not really from here? Immediately. Okay. So right when you get off the airport, I think they could tell by just physically sometimes looking at, at, at you as well. Just your demeanor, your look, your mm -hmm. clothes. You know, um, you know the way they, they carry on. Uh, obviously, the, your pronunciations and so forth. So immediately, they know that we're called NRI, and that means non-resident Indian, and that's what they call us over there. We're called NRIs, and I'm sure there's derogatory terms too that they call <laughs> NRIs. But you know, the uh, it's funny. You know, when when we go there. The shopkeepers over there in India, everything you've got to negotiate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so stressful. You know, if you go to even a higher end store to the market, you know, they you're, you're negotiating. You know, here's uh, uh, you know here's a dress for twenty five dollars, but you're supposed to. It's it's common practice to negotiate that down to fifteen dollars or twenty dollars. So if you, you don't know? do that, that's almost an insult. Well, uh, it it can be an insult. I mean, I don't think the person that's selling it, it's necessarily an insult. They just made more money. You know, it's just a way of life in China and India and places like that, uh, where in this country, that, that's not the culture. You know, yes, if you go buy a used car, or if you go buy a new car, there's opportunities to negotiate a little bit. But not when you go to the grocery store. Could you imagine how long it would take? You know, or to every to the item. Hotel counter and say, "I want your room for there, there you go. 95 there, instead of 125." There you go. And there's less in the hotels in India. Uh, that's for sure. But in the marketplace, there mm -hmm. is a lot more. So clearly, when based on again your demeanor and and your language and so forth, they clearly know you're an NRI. Mm -hmm. So guess what they're doing? They're marking things up. Oh, of course. You know, they're marking things up, and we're not very good negotiators, you know? So from the beginning, they're marking things up, you know, because there's no price tag on some of these items. So they're just saying that $25 item, they're putting it 50 bucks. And then we think we're smart because we're trying to negotiate, but we're not as good uh, of negotiators as they are. So we're, we wind up buying that thing at $45 when the locals are buying it at $25. And we realize real quick when you talk to your, lo your local cousin that says, why did you pay 45 bucks for that? I paid 15 bucks for that or 20 bucks for that. So, so your national identity or your cultural identity is now more American than it is Indian. Absolutely. So if you asked me, and, and I ask a lot of my fellow Indian Americans this question, do you see yourself as American, Indian American, or Indian, mm -hmm. right? So if you ask a first generation, many first generation people like my father, mm -hmm. initially they may have said Indian, mm -hmm. or at the least it's Indian American once right. they become ingrained in this society a little bit more, or they've got a U.S. citizenship. But if you ask the second or third generation that question, 
most people are going to say American. Okay. And, and isn't that what makes America so great? You know, and it's this melting pot of so many different cultures and people over years. Would, and, would you say that you melted into the American mainstream or that you still are a, a discernible piece of the mainstream that people really can pick you out from the masses? Oh, I, we, I, I would say that I have not completely melted. No, mm -hmm. I was, remember, I'm born in India. Right. I'm fluent in Gujarati. English is my third language. Mm -hmm. Okay, Second Gujarati, being... Hindi, believe Ooh, it or not, right. I didn't say this earlier, but I don't know Hindi today. I know how to, underst I, I know how to understand it. Mm -hmm. I could watch a Hindi movie mm -hmm. and understand 80% of what they're saying. All right. I know a few words here and there. And I could, and even in, if I'm in Mumbai, I could probably get by okay, at yeah. a restaurant or a store or whatever, taxi driver in Hindi, because there's enough there that I could pick up on. But when I came to this country, I was four years of age, Christian, and I was fluent in Gujarati and knew nothing, uh, no English at all, right? So the, the friends circle, the group of friends that my dad was fellow uh, Indian students mm -hmm. that were going to school at University of California, Davis. Only one family of the 20 families that were his friend circle group mm -hmm. was Gujarati. Really? They were from North India, Sikhs, mm -hmm. Punjabis, mm -hmm. to South Indians, to Bengalis. Mm -hmm. You know, it was mm -hmm. all Tamils. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were all, oh, so the common language, the Indian common language that they all knew was Hindi. Mm -hmm. So I picked up Hindi mm -hmm. before English. Interesting. Yes, I so, was speaking Hindi because all the kids that were my age, four, five, six, seven, were all speaking Hindi. And a lot of them, that was their, their first language. Keep that in mind, not uh, uh, Tamil or Bengali. Mm -hmm. It was Hindi. So Hindi was the only common language that we were speaking. So we're recording this in the fall of 2016. And when, when you listen to this, the season may already be over. But it is now the season for all the Garba celebrations, yes, right? The that traditional is dance yes. celebrations that Gujarati culture is yes. so, so well known for. Does your family still observe that? Ab absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we really enjoy it. Uh, you know, uh, my, obviously my parents uh, are very involved in it. And to, to me, to myself, my wife, to somewhat, and even now my kids are getting a little involved in it. But it's called Navrati. It's a nine-day festival uh, called Navrati. And so we dance uh, for nine continuous days. Uh, and Garba is the traditional folklore Gujarati dance mm -hmm. where you dance uh, in a circle. And there's so many different types of Garbas that you do. And then there's Dandya Ras with the sticks. Mm -hmm. And my kids love it. You know, yeah. they don't want to leave. You so know? you keep that part of your cultural identity alive despite the fact that it's not mainstream a American culture. Absolutely. There's a lot, actually. I didn't get into a, of this, but there's a lot that we do keep alive. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We eat a lot of Gujarati food. Mm -hmm. um, and I do want to mention this. Gujar India is a very diverse country. Mm -hmm. There are about 27 states. Mm -hmm. And going from one state to another is as different from going from Spain to France. Language changes, mm -hmm. culture, food, behaviors, behaviors, mm -hmm. all of those things, clothing, fashion, all those things change. And it, I'll even take a step further. You got, start going to the south of India, the alphabet even changes. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a very diverse country because it wasn't a mobile population. Remember, for thousands of years, there were kingdoms. And then when the British came, they kind of colonized it and brought India together and the parliament system, the railroad system, but still not a very mobile country. So until there was a bridge, there was a, I grew up in a small village called Sevni. My dad obviously was born and raised there all up until when he came here. And I was, up, I was uh, raised in that area up until four. And it was near this river. And no one knew anybody across that river. But then they because built a bridge. Until they built a bridge. We're talking about for thousands of years. People settled in this side of the river. People settled on that side of the river. They didn't know each other. They didn't marry. They didn't really go to social events. They didn't go to functions. Right across, simply across the river. If you look real hard and you had a binoculars, you could probably wave at them. And, and then there was a highway bridge, though, that came. So it's not the same. You know? So they still, to this day, even 10 years later after this bridge, there is a difference. So it's not a mobile population. When I first saw you present, I saw that in your slides you used the images of bridges. Yes. And you're currently building probably one of your signature hotels very close to a bridge that crosses the Tennessee River. And at that point when you presented that, I knew I needed to talk to you and have you on this program because the website of my company is plastered with images of bridges. Yes. I'm a firm believer yes. that bridges work and yes. walls don't. That's right. Bridges bring people together. Love so um, parting words, yes. what does the bridge mean to you? Absolutely. So um, I'm going to go back, Christian, to an Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton quote. And uh, he once said, we build too many walls, not enough bridges. Right. And it's a beautiful quote, right? And uh, so tear down those walls around you mm -hmm. and open up mm -hmm. and connect what a bridge is supposed to do and connect to people, food, culture, art, and all the great things that uh, life has to offer. Mitul, thank you for being available for this. This was beautiful. How do people find you? Well, uh, people are more than welcome to email me. Uh, at mpatel at vhghotels.com. We'll and post that in the show notes. We'll make sure that there is um, a link to the website. Sure. And is there a link for the upcoming beautiful boutique hotel? Absolutely. If you go into theedwinhotel.com, E-D-W-I-N, so it's theedwinhotel.com, then uh, we have a live uh, website. Uh, it's not, the hotel's not open, but it will be opening in the summer of 2017. Well, excellent, and I look forward to being there when it does. Absolutely. And all of you who have a chance to visit the beautiful Tennessee Valley, you should definitely stop by there and see not only the hotel, but the city around it. Mitchell, Mitch, thank you so much. Thank you, Christian. Mitch Patel from Chattanooga via Gujarat. I will, will beat IQ any day. Now, how is that for a quote? I love it. And did you hear about the emotional register? Before you can make any withdrawals, 
you need to make sure that you deposit a little bit. So go find Vision Hospitality Group online. The show notes will contain all the links you need. And also go to theedwinhotel.com. That's going to be a stunner right there over the Tennessee River in Chattanooga. You can connect with Mitch on Facebook and on LinkedIn. There's also a Twitter handle for both the company and himself. So check it out in the show notes. And also make sure you check out all the previous episodes of the Culture Guy podcast, easily found via theculturemastery.com forward slash blog slash podcast or just poke around on the blog it's easy to find there's a um, list of categories you can search in the search window you know how to handle this if you found this episode you'll find the others and also check out the blog Um, there's a few more new articles you'll find an article about cultural work in a post-truth narcissistic world man christian if you use big words you better know how to pronounce them it's called cultural work in a post-truth narcissistic world it's kind of my roundup to what happened at Ciatar conference and the aftermath of the united states election um, just my personal reflection on what we what kind of world we live in now that looks like Many of us have unlearned or forgotten how to talk with each other than talk about each other. I encourage you to read that. Send me a few notes or thoughts. Comment on the blog. I'd love to hear what you think about this topic. And don't forget, there is also a complimentary ebook. An ebook how you can crack the cultural codes of 10 countries. All you have to do is sign up on the website, go to theculturemastery.com, click on the Get Started button. It will ask you to submit your name and email, and you will get lots of freebies. Actually, you'll get six emails from us with free stuff, mainly the ebook written by Andy Molinsky, How to Crack the Cultural Codes of 10 Countries. Enjoy, and I will hear you on the next episode. Thank you. The Culture Guy is out. Remember, trust your process.